This episode of Paratopia is dedicated to Mac Tonys. Rest in peace, Mac. In a new age world filled with delusions and wish fulfillment by morons in need of attention, renowned experiencers of high strangeness and podcasters Jeffrey Ritzman and Jeremy Vaney received invitations to a tropical paradise getaway called Paratopia. Little did they know, it was the same type of new age spiritual retreat they've been avoiding all their lives. Don't be shy. DMT? I can't get my driver's license renewed there. Come on, you can shake it. Yeah. I haven't drank a brown brew in the jungle since that time I accidentally swallowed vomit. Anything goes with Paratopia. <laughs> and welcome. Fingerprints of the Gods, The Message of the Sphinx, The Mars Mystery, Talisman, Supernatural. This man has written and co-written a kajillion famous books. He needs no introduction. In fact, this is overkill. He is author explorer, Graham Hancock. Hey, Paratopia, our guest tonight, Mr. Graham Hancock. Graham, thanks a lot for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate you coming by. That's my pleasure, Jeff. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. I'm I'm curious, Graham, with all of the books that you've written, and you're you're like the only author that I that I've come across on Amazon that has multiple multiple pages. Okay. Um, uh, you you wrote tons of books on archaeological finds, on uh, all sorts of archaeological mysteries and thoughts. How did you get to this? Uh, Really, the 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 reason we sought you out was the uh, the ayahuasca and the other uh, compounds. Uh, how, yeah, how did you go from one to the, the other? <laughs> that's my most recent book, uh, Supernatural, which looks at shamanism and and uh, altered states of consciousness. It's been a long journey. Uh, the, the, there's not been a particular plan. Um, I just found myself steered by the material I explored. I mean, if we go way back to the 1970s and 1980s, I was a journalist. I was a mainstream journalist. My last uh, full-time sort of journalistic role was as uh, East Africa correspondent for for The Economist, a a serious political and economics uh, magazine. Um, and uh, through the right through to, 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 to sort of mid to late 80s, uh, I remained very much focused on current affairs. But I stumbled across a mystery in Ethiopia, uh, which absolutely intrigued me. And this was Ethiopia's claim to possess uh, the lost Ark of the Covenant. And uh, initially, I began to explore this just for fun, not really with an intention of writing anything about it. But as as time went on, I found that I was sitting on top of a major, major story and uh, ended up writing a huge book about it called The Sign and the Seal, uh, a quest for the lost Ark of the Covenant. And this was really the beginning for me of a, of an adventure that was to last um, uh, 15 years, uh, e- e- exploring uh, historical mysteries. And uh, I went on from that book 
um, while researching the sign and the seal, I had to uh, travel um, not only to Ethiopia, but also to Israel and to Egypt. And in Egypt in 1989, I was confronted for the first time with the Great Pyramids and the extraordinary majesty and perfection uh, of those uh, structures. And they struck a chord in my imagination and and I began to ask questions uh, about ancient Egypt which I found were not satisfactorily answered by mainstream academics and this eventually led to my book uh, Fingerprints of the Gods and to a whole series of other books that looked into the possibility of a lost civilization could there have been a forgotten episode in human history uh, more than 12,000 years ago and that invent- adventure, that inquiry, uh, culminated in, in 2002 with a book called Underworld, which was the product of more than six years of scuba diving all around the world, uh, looking for submerged uh, ruins for structures that had been covered by rising sea levels at the end of the last ice age, more than 12,000 years ago. And finally, to cut a long story short, following on, following on from that, um, I felt that I had made my contribution to the lost civilization mystery, and I wanted to turn back to something else that had intrigued me for a very long time. This was the question of human origins. Uh, but as I really got into the investigation of human origins, I found that the real story lies not millions of years ago, but just tens of thousands of years ago when the first great cave art, rock and cave paintings began to be created all over the world uh, between 40 and 30,000 years ago. And it was the investigation of the mystery of cave art that led me to shamanism and to traveling to the Amazon and drinking the extraordinary visionary brew known as ayahuasca, uh, the vine of souls which shamans believe allows them to project their consciousness into the spirit world, into what we would call a parallel universe. And, and the lessons that, uh, that ayahuasca uh, taught me, uh, as well as enabling me to write my book, uh, Supernatural, because I always believe that I must put myself into my story. I can't just sit in an armchair and speculate. I have to explore the mystery directly. Well, those lessons I learned from ayahuasca are still with me today and uh, guiding the future direction of my life. So it's just been one thing after another rather than a particular plan, uh, a sense of mystery, a sense of intrigue, wanting to explore the unexplained. Now, you, you mentioned, uh, we saw you speak at the X conference this past year. Yeah. And uh, one of the first things you mentioned in that lecture was the Chauvet Caverns, am I correct? Yeah, the Cave of Chauvet in, yes. in, in southern France, yes. And those were some of the, if I understand it right, those are some of the, the first cave art paintings that actually, I don't know, delved into more complex ideas well actually these are this is this is just about the oldest uh, art that has survived uh, from anywhere in the world um okay. are, are, are the, the the absolutely incredible and amazing paintings of chauvet cave they they date back 32,000 years um and and uh 
they uh, they consist of, of of an extraordinary array of beautiful beautiful images which which would stand beside any of the greatest uh, modern art in terms of technical accomplishment but which feature um supernatural beings visionary sequences we see creatures that are part animal and part human we see the figure of a woman in the process of transforming uh, into a lion we see a man who's part bison and and part human and it's clear from the imagery that these are not pictures of men and women dressed up in skins these are, are pictures of human beings caught in the process of transformation uh, from one state to another and this is one of the clues that tells us that those artists were exploring visionary experiences and i make the case in my book supernatural that they were exploring visionary experiences uh, through the use of the little mushroom that we call the liberty cap uh, today psilocybe semilanciata um, and uh, there are distinct motifs in the paintings which make it absolutely clear that those artists had experienced deeply altered states of consciousness uh, and had returned to what we would call a normal state of consciousness to make their paintings recollecting what they had seen uh, in the visionary state. And the amazing thing is that these these images from those caves more than 30,000 years ago, you can find very similar images being painted in the Amazon today by shamans uh, following journeys that they have made with the visionary brew known as ayahuasca. Uh, it seems that although separated by tens of thousands of years of time and, and thousands of miles of geography, the artists uh, were entering uh, the same non-ordinary reality and returning with documentation of what they'd seen there. And this just struck me as a very exciting idea and one worth exploring. Now, the mushroom, you have also experimented with that as well as ayahuasca, am I correct? Yes, I've, I've experimented with, uh, with quite a number of, uh, of, of visionary uh, substances. Um, in, in, and, and I did so uh, initially uh, because it was necessary to do so. Um, in order to conduct the research uh, for for my book, um, but I have I found these these experiences to be to be so valuable, um, both um, at a, at a number of different levels um, in terms of, of of personal development. One of the mysteries of of ayahuasca, uh, this strange brew from the from the Amazon, uh, is that you are shown episodes from your own life in a in an extremely clear and unsympathetic manner you know we often behave badly towards other people but we provide ourselves with excuses for why it was okay for us to be mean and nasty like that <laughs> sure. but but ayahuasca shows you very clearly how you actually behaved and gives you an opportunity to to change your behavior to 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 make yourself a better person this is a universal experience of of anyone anywhere in the world who drinks ayahuasca and then secondly um much more mysterious um the sense of being plunged into a seamlessly convincing 
parallel world, uh, which is inhabited by intelligent entities, uh, which can take many forms. Uh, most uh, the the, mo- the most common form is is the form of serpents, of of, of huge snakes. Uh, again, almost everyone who drinks ayahuasca will will encounter uh, these serpents. They're not terrifying. They seem um, they they seem warm and friendly. They seem like teachers. Um, uh, but also of creatures that are part animal and part human in form, and sometimes, sometimes fully human. You have the sense that you are dealing almost with the gods and goddesses of antiquity, uh, who speak to you in in uh, in, in a direct and, and clear manner, and uh, very frequently uh, provide uh, inspiration. It's not an accident that a number of great artists working today. Uh, Alex Gray, uh, for example, or Martina Hoffman and uh, Robert Venosa um, have been hugely inspired by their experiences with ayahuasca uh, to produce stunningly beautiful uh, and transformative visionary art. Now, in my own case, um, I am not um, uh, I'm not a painter. I really can't draw or paint anything to, to save my life, but I am a writer. And I found that my, my writing has received uh, a huge uh, inspiration from my experiences with ayahuasca, such, as, such that for the past uh, two years, uh, I have been sitting at my desk writing my first work of fiction, uh, a fantasy adventure novel. Um, which will be published uh, in the U.S. in the fall of 2010. And uh, that, that novel, the inspiration for that novel, came, uh, came directly from ayahuasca, like a, like a massive download of, uh, of information, so that I almost felt I was channeling it rather than, than simply uh, huh. writing it. And so, so these, are, these are, 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 are mysteries that are hard to explain. Why should, why should a combination of two... Uh, plants from the from the Amazon jungle put us into this state which causes us to examine our personal lives to seek to make ourselves better people to have experience of parallel realms and uh, the beings that, that, that inhabit them and to have our own creativity boosted uh, it's why I, I, I gave the subtitle meetings with the ancient teachers of mankind uh, to the book I wrote about all this which was of course supernatural Right. The I, I think one of the biggest mysteries, at least for us on this show, has been. Uh, well, we had uh, uh, Dennis McKenna, brother yeah. of Terrence, on the show not long ago. Yes. Where we discussed uh, the psilocybin mushroom and ayahuasca together, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think one of the things that seems to fascinate me more than anything else is the shared experiences by more than one person. Uh, much like Strassman's book talks about DMT yeah. and the entities that people seem to encounter in a regular way. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. That, that, um, that's that, that's, that's that. something that really kind of eats at me about uh, exactly what are we experiencing in in a hallucinogenic state. Yeah, but not only that, but um, where ultimately do these substances come from? Yeah. Uh, you know, McKenna postulated that he thought. That because it was the only four phosphorylated end all on the planet, that uh, the mushroom could be an alien artifact of some sort. Yes. Uh, what well, do you think of that kind of thought? 
I think a lot of uh, of of uh, those, those those kind of explanations. I, you know, the, the 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 experiences that we are plunged into with these substances are are, are so profound and and so transformative that we we really knew, do need to consider uh, what is going on here. And I mean, they literally are transformative. The case I make in in my book uh, Supernatural is that we were put on the path to being fully human by these substances, that, that all human creativity and all human spirituality was really, is really missing from the archaeological record uh, until we have, um, an, 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 until the first great art inspired by these substances uh, appears. They seem to have set us on a new track and in a new direction and literally opened our minds and allowed us to achieve our um, evolutionary uh, potential. It's truly uh, a, an extraordinary mystery. In the case of, in the case of uh, ayahuasca, which is not a, a fungus, it's um, I, ayahuasca is a mixture of two plants. One of them is the ayahuasca vine. The, the botanical name is Banisteriopsis carpi, and the other is uh, the leaves of a of a bush that is known in the Amazon as chacruna. The botanical name is Cicotria viridis. These two plants only work in combination. They don't produce visionary experiences separately. You have to mix them together. And, and so the Amazonian shamans were, were uh, selecting from more than 150,000 different species of plants and trees in the Amazon, the precise two that would lead to these visionary experiences. And when asked to explain how it was that their ancestors stumbled across, across this combination of plants, they say that it was the spirits themselves who taught them. And I think this kind of, this kind of reasoning needs, uh, leads us to, to consider um, the notion of some kind of extraterrestrial intervention. But I want to emphasize that I'm using that word uh, perhaps more broadly uh, than the way that it's normally used. I am not talking about uh, physical aliens who've come here in nuts and bolts spaceships <laughs> right. from, from the other side of this physical universe. In other words, beings basically like us from, with, from within space-time as we are. Uh, I think the problem's much more interesting and much more complicated than that. I think that we're dealing with uh, interdimensional contact here. That's what I would put my money out on. That's what I would bet on if I were a betting man. Um, that, that what these experiences are allowing us to do are to make uh, contact across the dimensions with other levels and grades uh, of reality. I think reality is just so much more complicated and mysterious uh, than the everyday quote-unquote reality that, uh, that surrounds us. Of course, we are physical beings. We are evolved to function physically at this level in this realm. And most of the time, our consciousness is focused on physical survival. Um, and what this does, while it supremely adapts us to physical life on this planet, is it cuts us off from the wider reality. And I think what these plants, what all of them do, whether it's psilocybe uh, mushrooms or, or, or ayahuasca uh, or, or indeed um, mescaline and a whole range of, of other visionary substances, is that they retune the receiver wavelength of the brain and uh, allow us 
to connect with a far wider reality, which is always there, which surrounds us all the time, which interpenetrates our lives in every way, uh, but which is not normally uh, accessible uh, to our senses. And, and, you know, to take this line of argument a little further, I would say it is our destiny uh, and our birthright uh, to be connected uh, to that wider reality, and that those plants are here, that they have co-evolved with us on this planet uh, precisely in order to allow us to do so. Should we live in societies that shut our minds down, that close us off, that prevent us from recognizing our connection to the totality, there's always a back door provided by these plants which we can open and reconnect with those realms, whether or not society wants us to do so. All right. That that kind of brings me to the next thing of, uh, you know, we, we talk about the brain a, a lot as a dampener on this show and some of these compounds actually uh, tuning the brain differently to perceive mm. things that are always all around us. And one of the things that uh, we've heard from some of our listeners who have experimented with some of these, and Jeremy and I actually, after much deliberation and delay, uh, finally ate mushrooms uh, mm-hmm. not horribly long ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, and while our experiences were similar, we had we had much different uh, uh, experiences apart from me. There were a lot of a lot of things that were subtly similar, but by and large, I would say they were quite mm-hmm. different. You can expect a lot of people, that. You can sure. expect that, I should say, because because you bring to the table your own different backgrounds and experiences, and these are the filter through which you receive uh, all of right. reality. One of the things that's often brought up, I mean, when we're talking about everything from DMT to ayahuasca to the mushroom, uh, is that a lot of people would argue that there are not beings there that that they've seen. They haven't had that experience, and. I guess my my kind of go-to answer all the time, and you can tell me what you think of this, somebody who's much more experienced than I am, um, is that dosage based on weight and probably a host of other reasons um, that people don't get through um, you know, a sub-threshold experience to actually get to that right tuning fork of the brain place. Yeah, um, I think you, you see I think that you as put- – I think you put your finger on the on the heart of the matter. Um, this is uh, the, when we talk about retuning the receiver wavelength of the brain of the human creature. We're we're talking about a very subtle and complex process in which many factors play a part. One of those factors is the substance itself. Um, but other factors are the biochemistry of each individual uh, and the setting in which the substance is consumed. Um, if the setting is wrong or uncomfortable or disconcerting uh, to any individual, then that individual will not have such a full experience as a person who is comfortable and relaxed and safe in the setting. Um, so, so I would say that that um, uh, that in order to explore these experiences to the depth that they can be, the first and most important thing to do is to create an absolutely safe, nurturing, reassuring space, and that the journey should be guided by some shaman-like figure 
if not uh, an experienced shaman from the Amazon jungle, then a Western shaman who has explored these realms, um, who has accumulated enormous experience in exploring these realms. The, the presence of that experienced individual or individuals is an important part uh, of, of the journey. If you, if you undertake the journey uh, totally disoriented and disturbed and afraid uh, of what you're going to confront, it will inevitably uh, affect the experience you have. Now, some people might argue that because individuals have a range of different experiences, that this suggests that the experience itself is not real. But we have to remember that in everyday life, different people also experience the same things in different ways. When you compare notes, you can realize you were all seeing the same thing, but we often experience it in different ways. If a crime is carried out and there are 10 witnesses to the crime, each one of them will give a different description of the perpetrator. Sure. Uh, you know, once you sit down and actually go through the fine detail, you might recognize resemblances in what they've seen. But because they're bringing their own perceptual mindset to the party, um, naturally their mindset affects what they see. We human beings can't see anything without interpreting it. We interpret perceptions from the get-go, and these interpretations that we impose on the perceptions account uh, for a large amount of the variety. But actually, when you when you um, look more deeply at this, what's really stunning and striking is the transpersonal similarities in experiences. That, and and these, these similarities are, are, just, are just so great uh, that you begin to have to ask yourself whether the individuals concerned are not all visiting the same parallel world. And that's why they're coming back with the same reports admittedly mediated by their own personalities and by the set and setting, but still recognizably, recognizably the same re reports, like explorers going to a distant country and returning and giving accounts of their experiences. Um, a huge number of common factors are, are ultimately to be found. Right. The, I guess the, the ultimate question here is, out of your... Um, well, at, at X conference, I think you said it was some thirty odd times that you had drank ayahuasca. Yeah, it's increased um, slightly since the X conference. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> woohoo! I, I persist with ayahuasca, and and it's my it's my view that um, that I, ideally I, w I will aim to drink ayahuasca four or five times a year, uh, as long as I am still um, functioning on this planet. Um, it has proved, so I, I would not say it, I, I want to say she, because ayahuasca is an entity and a being. This is not simply a matter of plants. Every, everybody um, who's worked with ayahuasca extensively will tell you this, the shamans of the Amazon will tell you this, that there is a, a female spirit uh, who lies behind ayahuasca, whose business is the planet, uh, but who loves and cares for, for humanity in a tough love kind of way. Mm -hmm. uh, this is no soppy love. This is, this is tough love that ayahuasca uh, delivers. And, and um, I've, I've found my, my experiences with, with ayahuasca so beneficial and so positive for, for every area of my life uh, that I, continue, I, I, I intend to continue with this work. Uh, I regard it as work. I intend to continue enrolled in the school of ayahuasca. Well, uh, well what, what, Graham, what have you, um, I mean, this question always bears asking is that you've done this so many times. Um, is there anything that you could put your finger on that's been conveyed to you in these places, these states, 
Well, uh, uh, that, uh, yeah. that, you know, that you wouldn't know that you, you come back and you go, there's no way I could have known that my own mind couldn't have contained that. Um, you know, I, I know that there's, there's a certain amount of astonishment with any of these things. Um, uh, but has any information ever been imparted to you that are, is just so outside of your range of knowledge that this had to be from somewhere else? Well, listen, as I mentioned, as I mentioned a few moments ago, I've spent, you know, the last 20 plus years, more, more, actually, I've been, I've been writing since the early 1970s, 30 plus years, you know, writing, um, analytical non-fiction, you know, very detailed, uh, inquiries, admittedly into historical mysteries, but often with a thousand footnotes, you know, fully, fully referenced throughout very thoroughly, thoroughly researched, uh, works. Um, and, and what ayahuasca has done has given me a huge kick up the ass and, 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 um, reawakened or, or completely awakened my creativity. I, the, 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 the novel that I've just finished, uh, writing, I had no idea that, that, that I had that novel in me. I don't believe I did have it in me. Mm-hmm. I think it was given to me, um, by, by this extraordinary visionary plant, but the plants behind which lies, uh, uh, what, what I would call a, a, a supernatural entity. Um, I, I know that that sounds very mysterious and very strange. There may be people out there who will laugh at that, but I spent the last two years writing this story down, uh, and that story was not present in my mind uh, before before I had the ayahuasca journey, just as some of the, the, the great art by the artists I mentioned earlier was not present in their minds right. uh, before they had the, the ayahuasca journey. So new information uh, is being added. Um, if you're if you're asking me, have I been given a specific information that that I but with which I can absolutely prove that parallel universes exist? Well, the answer to that is no. no right. uh, the the experience is more tricky than that. Uh, it's not a matter of pat answers. It's a matter of setting each individual on a process, uh, a process which will be ultimately. Um, beneficial um, and 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 um, on a grand scale helpful to the human race just as when our ancestors first began to encounter these substances 30 or 40,000 years ago it switched them onto a new track uh, just as in the 1960s uh, a huge burst of creativity was unleashed in human consciousness I mean just look at the music of the 60s look at the look at the computer revolution that that grew out of all of that to see how new information was added uh, to the human collective uh, by the experiences that we had in those times now of course uh, dark and negative forces in society have struck down and tried to suppress those experiences and fill us with terror and fear uh, about where these substances lead us uh, but those uh, forces are the dark side and they are and they are wrong and the human yearning to explore the beyond and the possibility to do so through these amazing plants that have co-evolved on the planet with us remains. Well, before I uh, throw it over to Jeremy, and this is, this is kind of a two-part question. You mentioned in your, in your ex-conference lecture that in these visions you have seen what we would call aliens and UFOs. Yeah, and uh, I'm curious um, about, about if you could walk us through that experience, but also outside 
of the experiences that you've had with ayahuasca and all of these others, have mm-hmm. you ever had any kind of manifestation in front of you, um, uh, UFO sighting since starting this process? No. Um, I only gain access to those experiences in altered states of consciousness, most efficiently with DMT uh, in, uh, in its pure form, smoked. And uh, intriguingly in-depth, in a longer-term kind of journey with ayahuasca. Now, ayahuasca contains DMT. Um, uh, the, 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 the DMT that we can smoke in a pipe and the, the DMT that is consumed in ayahuasca are the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but uh, interestingly, there's an enzyme in the stomach that destroys DMT on contact. So normally, were you to eat or drink a pure DMT potion, uh, it would have no effect on you whatsoever. And what's amazing about the Amazonian brew is that the vine that is mixed with the leaves that contains DMT, the vine contains a molecule that switches off that enzyme in our stomachs and allows DMT to be absorbed orally. So in the case of ayahuasca, your DMT experience, but it is not the same as smoked DMT. There are similarities, but it's different. It goes on for hours, for three to four hours but interrupted by episodes of incredible nausea and vomiting, which, which do take your mind off the experience. Um, pure DMT in smoked form uh, is a very short-lasting experience, lasts for 12 to 15 minutes at the most, uh, is not interrupted by nausea. Some people find it almost too overwhelming to bear. Uh, it, is such, it is such a strong experience. It just pulls you out of your body like, a, like an elevator going up a lift shaft at a tremendous speed. Um, and that in itself can be a bit disorienting. But in answer to your question, it is only in altered states of consciousness that I personally have been able uh, to have these experiences of contact with entities that are not of this, of this level of material reality that we call planet Earth, um, that are of, of some other level, or, and I believe uh, some, some other dimension. Now, there are, the, the research that I go into in, in Supernatural makes it abundantly clear that there are individuals who are capable of entering a spontaneous visionary state and making contact with these other realities without the need uh, to take uh, uh, to, to take any of the plant allies that help the rest of us uh, to get there. And there are other techniques that don't involve plants uh, or substances. For example, certain kinds of rhythmic dancing and uh, and, and drumming, uh, which can can detach our focus from day-to-day life and allow the broader uh, reality to, 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 to creep in. Um, the point that I, that I make in the book is that, is that down the ages, in different cultures and places, human beings have always been reporting contact with the other, with entities and beings that appear to be not of this earth, not of daily physical reality. And for shamans in hunter-gatherer societies, whether in the Amazon or, or Southern Africa uh, or, or elsewhere, uh, these beings are spoken of and construed as spirits or as gods and goddesses. 
Um, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, right through until the 1940s, really, for about a thousand years, um, these beings were construed as fairies and elves. And in the modern world, uh, really from the time that it became that it became embarrassing to speak about fairies and elves, which was round about the 1940s, uh, the experience transformed and became an experience of contact with what we now construe to be aliens or extraterrestrials. Um, but the case that I make, and, and I'm not alone in making this case, I, I need to cite the absolutely extraordinary groundbreaking work of Jacques Vallée uh, in his wonderful book, Passport to Magonia, published in 1969. In many respects, what I did was simply take that argument forward, adding all the new evidence that has come, uh, that has become available since 1969. Um, that what we're, you know, what we're talking about here is the same, exact same experience viewed through different cultural spectacles. Spirits amongst shamans and hunter-gatherers, fairies and elves in medieval Europe, aliens in the modern world. It's not surprising that we construe them as um, aliens and extraterrestrials who've come here in spaceships because ours is the generation that has witnessed the exploration of space by our own species. Uh, so we apply that particular framework to the experience. But when you analyze in detail the reports of these contacts with spirits, with fairies, and with aliens, you find that they're all absolutely, without any doubt in my mind, talking about the same beings and entities with the same uh, descriptions of their appearance and the same accounts of their behavior. They've been interacting with the human race in various disguises uh, for thousands of years, and their purpose seems to be uh, to bring us on, to, to help us to become what we can become. Jeremy. Uh, well, then the question becomes, uh, there are multiple witness UFO sightings and there are multiple well-documented um, abduction cases, such as the Allagash uh, case, I believe, out of Maine. Um, so does that not imply that these things do have a, a physicality in this world to them? Oh, yes. No, I didn't, I didn't mean to rule that out at all. Uh, I do think they have a physicality. Um, I think, I, I, as I said earlier in our discussion, I think, I think it's more likely that we're dealing with an extremely mysterious interdimensional contact than a relatively simple um, interstellar space uh, contact here. Um, I think that we're looking at entities who have developed, for want of a better word, a technology uh, to jump from dimension to dimension. Uh, perhaps that technology is the flying saucer. Uh, it used to be the fairy dance. It used to be a kind of circular dance. If you got close to fairies dancing in a circle, if you were to touch that whirling circle of dancers, you would be drawn into it and, and carried through into another world. Uh, there you might experience time passing uh, 
um, you think you've spent a day there, but when they bring you back, you find that sometimes, in some cases, hundreds of years uh, have passed. Time seems to operate differently in those realms. I do think definitely there is a physical aspect to this experience. I do think that the, the entities from other dimensions have found ways to interact with us, not only at the level of consciousness, uh, but also at the level of uh, physicality. Uh, and therefore, it isn't surprising that we do find uh, physical uh, traces of this experience. But what's interesting uh, is, um, is the clearly psychic nature of this experience as well. For example, Rick Strassman's uh, volunteers on his DMT project at the University of New Mexico uh, were clearly having experiences that were very similar to, if not identical, to the experiences of people who uh, reported being abducted by UFOs. But in the case of Rick Strassman's volunteers, physically they clearly were not abducted because their bodies were under observation, lying on a hospital bed uh, in the University of New Mexico. Nevertheless, it seemed that their consciousness was abducted. So I think we we probably shouldn't you know, try to impose hard and fast boundaries on these mysterious experiences. We should accept from the outset the obvious evidence that, that there is a physical element and there is a psychic element to this experience. And after all, why should that surprise us? Because we are both physical and psychic beings ourselves. So why is it that you think um, we... Well, I don't know. I don't know if devolved is the right word, but sort of uh, branched off and became rational materialists and gave up the spirit world. Do you think that that was a mistake or do you think it was a growth process of sort of species individuation and will blend back in? I'll tell you the answer to that as far as I see it. Uh, and, and, and this goes back into the, into the oldest religious traditions as well. It's obvious to me that there's good and evil at work in the universe and in the totality, um, good and evil. Um, and, and this is true in what we call the spirit world, as it is true in the physical uh, daily world. And I think there are negative forces and entities at work which would like to see, would do everything they can to see that human potential is not realized, but is shut down and closed off and, and not explored. If you go back to the Gnostic texts, uh, which were linked to early Christianity, but radically different from early Christianity, you'll find they depict a realm in which beings that they call archons uh, do everything possible to shut down human potential. Uh, and I think that's what's happened. I think we've, I think we've devolved uh, back away from the incredible spiritual journeys that our ancestors were making uh, in, the, in the Stone Age and still do in hunter-gatherer societies today. We in Western industrial society have had that faculty shut down, and it's been shut down by, by negative spiritual forces uh, which operate uh, in, the, in the human domain. A struggle is going on, a, a cosmic struggle between, between light and darkness, and uh, our role as human beings uh, is to choose, to make a choice. Uh, between the two, and by shutting down our faculties, our ability to choose clearly is taken away from us. And all I can say is, thank goodness the back doors exist. Thank goodness the mystery of ayahuasca and of the psilocybe mushrooms exists, and that we can, through these plants, reconnect with wider reality. Why would they care? Why would they want to shut us down? 
Well, you have to. You get into the question of you get into the simple question of of good and evil there. Um, you know, and this is this is ultimately something that that cannot be that that cannot be simply answered. But if you go back to the ancient texts, they envisage uh, a, a, a war in heaven, if you like, uh, between forces that seek growth, development, the nurturing of potential, goodness, light, creativity, warmth, beauty and forces for whatever reason that are devoted to darkness and horror and misery and despair and the absolute absence of potential. And I think if you look around the world today, you can see that we as a species, that our dilemma, our predicament, um, is, is, uh, is, is precisely the, the overwhelming power of negative forces and the desperate need uh, to, to, to struggle against them. Mm-hmm. All right, so getting back to your ayahuasca journeys, uh... What is the sort of common thread that happens in all of them? Is there there must be, right? Do you do you go to the same place? Do you common see the thread same is things? the common the common thread wherever you drink ayahuasca, be it in a city, be it in the jungle, uh, is that you will often find yourself experientially in an, in an enchanted, uh, highly organic jungle world, uh, filled with intelligent entities, often in the form of serpents. Uh, who greet you and speak to you. The spirit of ayahuasca herself, as she is recognized by shamans in the Amazon, um, very frequently takes the form of a gigantic serpent. Uh, I had an encounter with this being during an ayahuasca journey where she wrapped herself around my body and rested a huge head on my shoulder and just looked me in the eyes for two hours. And what that was about was a period in my life where I was feeling very low and negative about myself, unable to love myself, and what that experience taught me uh, was that I should that I should love myself and not not concentrate on the negative, but look at the positive uh, in my life. And it was a, a very uh, positive, uh, transformatory experience. I've heard similar experiences reported to me by many uh, who, who who drink ayahuasca. Uh, going on through the jungle, um, one often comes to cities made of crystal or glass with uh, extraordinary flying vehicles uh, moving around uh, in, in, inside them. It really, is, it really is quite stunning and strange, and, and uh, it is an experience that is shared in common by many, many, many people. I mean, uh, what I would recommend to, to listeners, if they want to go in depth into this shared phenomenology, that is the word that the scientists give to it, is to look at the book called The Antipodes of the Mind by Benny Shannon. He's the professor of psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Benny's drunk ayahuasca around about 400 times now. Um, and uh, so he has uh, personally charted those realms, and he has documented the experiences of hundreds of other people who have drunk ayahuasca. And it's eerie and stunning, uh, the astonishing commonalities that emerge from this detailed scientific study. When you had, what, well, first of all, what was it that, um, was it the ayahuasca or something else that you took when you had the abduction type experiences? Uh, it was ayahuasca. Um, I had I had abduction type experiences in ayahuasca once in the jungle uh, in Peru uh, for 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 example um, I found myself transported to a 
to a strange and, and, and terrifying space. A, a tunnel of light uh, opened up uh, above me. There seemed to be a huge disc-like ship uh, whirling in the sky. Uh, off to the side of it was um, a face that, well, very like uh, the, the typical faces of, of, of greys that we see depicted in the in the, the, the popular media today, but with um, but with uh, segmented eyes uh, like a fly, and there was something there was something dark and scary about this about this entity, and 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 I found myself resisting and i actually shouted out loud no no i refuse and 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 i opened my eyes wide and and stopped the experience happening uh, this is one of the things that you can that you can often do with ayahuasca is you can stop the experience or at least temporarily halt it by opening your eyes now in retrospect i hugely regret doing that i should have had the courage to just throw myself into the experience. And I would say that's one of the things I've learned to do subsequently is to surrender to the experience, to embrace the experience rather than fighting it. But I, I fought it and I canceled that experience, whatever it was going to lead to. But it did feel to me very much that I was about to be taken. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be taken uh, and, and, therefore, and, and, and therefore resisted it. Did the sort of mind's eye environment that this thing was embedded in was was it the same jungle situation as normal ayahuasca experiences? Yeah, good question. Um, yes, it was a it was a jungle it was a jungle type of environment. But what dominated the scene was this um, was this tunnel or funnel of light that uh, that opened up uh, above me. Hmm. When when you do these these different uh, the different substances, do the places that they bring you have a different feeling to them in terms of their reality yes they do and this is a, this is a very curious thing about dmt dimethyltryptamine um, because as i mentioned dmt is the primary active ingredient in ayahuasca um, but ayahuasca um, almost always plunges me in in into this organic uh, realm filled with organic life of some sort that this life is is, is radiant with intelligence and, 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 and a kind of supernatural power, but it is, but it is clearly organic life. Uh, whereas DMT in pure form, smoked, um, almost always takes me into a much more almost machine-like, um, very, very geometrical, um, very, very, very ordered, um, almost technological realm, which has things like... Um, like objects made of, of of strange glass um and and uh, machinery uh, in, in inside it but but again a feeling of enchantment a feeling that magicians are at work the last time i i smoked dmt i had 3 dmt experiences in a row um in a period of about 2 hours um and these 3 experiences, each of which lasted no more than 15 minutes, um, seemed to unfold in a process. And the process began, it was, it was to do with healing. I, I came out of that experience, which wasn't so long ago, actually, um, feeling healed 
um, and, and I've continued to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it began with, with circular lights uh, moving over my body, rotating half a turn one way, three quarters of a turn the other way. Um, these, these cir- they were circles of lights, so there were five or six little lights in a circle which moved very rapidly all over my body, but particularly concentrated around, around my head, rotating, rotating back in the other direction, moving around me. And, and no entity was seen, um, but, but it was clear to me that these lights were diagnosing faults in my body and putting them right. And, and as the experiences unfolded in the, in the third experience, I found myself just in this extraordinary enchanted uh, space where, first of all, I saw a, 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 an insect made of crystal, of, of silver crystal, uh, balanced up on its hind legs, which, which a, a large creature, which, which seemed to be studying me in a most, in, in a dispassionate, not a terrifying, not a hateful way, but a, rather a dispassionate way, much as perhaps we might examine an insect um, in daily life. Um, and, and, and two magicians, I can only describe them as magicians, moving around and, and making the most extraordinary hand movements uh, as, they, as they moved around my body. And again, I got the sense of a work being done on me, and I emerged from that uh, experience enormously reassured with a feeling that, that quite a number of issues that had been troubling me in my life had been, had been uh, sorted out and, and, and cleared up, and I have been, I have been feeling pretty good uh, since then. You know, I, have, I really have... I have no absolute explanation for what's going on here. I can only tell you that it is the most extraordinary mystery, uh, that it is worth exploring it. I, I need to add a caution, of course. Um, this, is, um, th- this is a very serious business. This is, not, um, this is not something to be undertaken lightly. This is not something to be undertaken recreationally. This is one of the mistakes that our society makes in dealing with substances like this. And I think it makes that mistake because of so much, so much confusing misinformation that's been pumped out by the so-called war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to view these, as, these substances as very, very serious matters indeed. Uh, and that when we make these journeys, we have to accept that sometimes the journeys will be terrifying and disorienting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, 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 and it will not always be easy. And we may have absolutely frightening uh, and disturbing experiences as well as positive and reassuring experiences. But that is true of any worthwhile experience in this world today. Um, we can't expect everything to be sugar-coated. Uh, there will be challenges and difficulties. We have to prepare ourselves psychically and emotionally for those challenges and difficulties. We have to know that they may be there, but nevertheless, once all precautions are taking, taken, once a safe and nurturing setting is provided, once an experienced guide is in place, uh, I believe it is worth embracing and exploring those experiences. Mm-hmm. And do you have any insight into where it would take you after? I mean, it seems like it's healing you physically and psychologically. And mm. once, once you've sort of perfected those realms, 
what yeah. happens next? I'm not sure, uh, because it is a process, it is a school. Um, you don't get to take the next lesson until you finish the previous one. Um, all I know for sure in my case uh, is that is that I I definitely have received an, an enormous boost to my creativity. I've been um, I've been allowed to explore areas as a writer that I never imagined that I would go into uh, before, and I've and I found it I found um, that uh, that exploration of new forms of writing uh, new for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be absolutely fulfilling and uh, indeed exciting, uh, very, 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 very exciting work. And I, 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 I feel that that I have more to download uh, from from the other realms. The, the the actually the novel I told you about is in two volumes, and I think I've pretty much got volume. I've I've written volume one. I think I've pretty much got volume two um, downloaded, but I don't absolutely count on that. And I intend to go back and revisit these realms thanks to the grace of these plants Mm -hmm. well we're coming up on an hour just about so i want to hit you with three questions about your archaeological work Mm -hmm. um well the first one let's make it a segue question uh which is how how has all of this now affected the way you look at you know the the time of the, the pyramids I think if you what's what's clear to me and and wasn't clear to me when when um, I began to explore historical mysteries um, is again the role of altered states of consciousness um, in the work that the ancient Egyptians were doing. Uh, just look at at the ancient Egyptian gods and goddesses, whether it is uh, Thoth, the god of wisdom, with the head of an ibis, uh, a certain kind of bird, or uh, Horus with the head of a hawk, the Sphinx, a lion-bodied creature with uh, the head of a man, uh, Anubis, the guide of souls through the underworld, uh, the body of a man and the head of a jackal. Um, these these kind of entities and and beings are the absolute uh, normal experience of altered states of consciousness, and therefore it's obvious to me that the ancient Egyptians were deliberately cultivating and exploring and pursuing altered states of consciousness. Their interest, their primary interest, was in the question of what happens to us when we die. That's what the books of the dead are all about. They're, they're manuals for the afterlife journey that our soul must take uh, when, we, when we transit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're designed to prepare us and uh, set us up uh, for that journey so that we're alert and aware and ready to deal uh, with the challenges there. And I don't think this was work of imagination on the part of the Egyptian priests. I think this was a work of experience and exploration. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our listeners had asked me to ask you um, if you have been able to make it back to uh, the, the underwater you know, potential city off the coast of Japan. Yeah, I've done more than 200 dives at Yonaguni, which is the, 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 the series of underwater structures that your listener is referring to. But the last dive uh, I did there was in 2002. Um, and I haven't been back uh, to dive at that site uh, since 2002. Um, I hope to 
I hope to return uh, and and do more diving there, but because it's a wonderful, magical place to dive, um, it's also quite a daunting place to dive with extremely severe uh, currents, and I have come near to losing my life there uh, on two occasions while while diving at that site. Mm-hmm. Um, I've 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 made my best shot at doing the work, and it's described at length in my book Underworld. But mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I'll never go back. Well, when when uh, this must be the place that I had seen also on um, National Geographic, right, where they sort of they always end up poo pooing and everything and saying, well, it's just a natural structure. Do you get the sense that it could be a natural structure? No, absolutely not. It's it's definitely man made. The reason for the confusion is twofold. Firstly, it is it is hewn or cut out of solid bedrock. Um, it isn't built up of blocks except in one or two places. Um, and when something is cut from solid bedrock, this always allows skeptics to to suggest that it might have natural natural causes. Um, the second problem is that most of the skeptics who say it's natural haven't been there, haven't dived on the site. Uh, and the very few who have dived are such incompetent and useless divers that they've only been able to spend minutes uh, around the structures instead of hours and days as uh, as I have done, I, I I don't just talk the talk. I've I've walked the walk. I've dived that site back and forward in every possible condition. Explored all the structures. If there was just one structure, uh, I would be I would be willing to to listen to the skeptics. But we're dealing with five major structures here, um, arranged in a in a coherent, uh, intelligent pattern, uh, and and I have no doubt uh, whatsoever that the hand of man was at work there. Okay, and I guess my last question is, there are uh, a slew of um, alternative archaeology uh, authors out there, and you guys all seem to, um, or not all, but a lot of people, review each other's works kindly. Uh, at least I see the blurbs on the back of the books that I read, and mm. uh, and that influences my purchasing. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that you all mainly agree with each other on what's going on? And if there is an agreeance... What would it take to actually change mainstream archaeology? I think the I think the the agreement is primarily that there is a mystery that needs to be explored, and that the and that the mainstream view of history uh, may not be providing the whole answer. Uh, I, I think that's where where the alternative um, researchers come in. We're offering we're offering a, 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 a different way uh, of interpreting history and prehistory. And I think that's, that's healthy and good. Uh, getting the mainstream to, to change its perspective has never been easy. Uh, scientific uh, revolutions don't uh, happen easily. Uh, they happen in the teeth of opposition from those who are invested in the current paradigm. This is absolutely normal. You can trace it with all kinds of scientific revolutions over the last uh, thousand years or so, and it's no different why, there's no reason why it should be any different uh, in the case of ancient history. Meanwhile, uh, the, the the criticism, the uh, attacks, and the skepticism of mainstream archaeology are a good thing uh, because they help those of us who are taking the alternative view to up our game uh, and to make sure that we're not talking nonsense. Mm-hmm. And is, is it the kind of thing where they secretly come to you, so, some of these archaeologists, and say, yeah, I'll never say this in public, but I really believe where you're coming from is, is true? That has happened to me. That has happened to me, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Graham Hancock, thank you so much for uh, giving us an hour of your time.
Yes, That's sir. a pleasure. I've very much enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me on the show. Great. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Dennis McKenna, and you're listening to Jeff and Jeremy on Paratopia. <laughs> Jeff, yes. Yes, yes, Jeremy. Jeff, nice to see you again, old buddy. Nice to hear your voice. Same to you. We haven't spoken since the last show. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> is, that, is that right? We haven't no. spoken since the last show. I can't stand the sight of you. <laughs> uh, Graham Hancock. Yeah. What wow. did we talk about again? <laughs> <laughs> has been a while, yeah, hasn't it? It's been, it's, what, a week? Uh, yes, it's a been a week, a week. Uh, little over a week. Uh, so Jog my memory. Um, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> uh, no, no. Don't know what we're talking no. about. Thank you and good now, night. Now, I'll put it – well, I'll say this. you got to admire a guy who can, uh, I don't know, do DMT and then drink ayahuasca and all that stuff in the same night. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Mushrooms. Well, I'll have some of those. When I come down off these, have the DMT ready. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of expected to hear a lot of the – uh, I don't know the McKenna-esque type of stuff from him, and uh, and I really didn't. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you, you heard some of the some of the same aspects of his experiences with this stuff, but you didn't hear much about machine elves or um, you know incessant babbling. Uh, you know, I, I think what I did find interesting, and I'm not sure if it actually made it onto the show, but because uh, we did call him back after the show off the record more or less. Right. And um, I'm fairly sure it got into the show where he was talking about one ayahuasca experience where he saw um, a, a, some sort of healing going on with him. And there were what he called two magicians walking around him doing the most amazing hand movements. Right. <laughs> I, I thought, huh. Amazing hand movements, <laughs> Jeremy. Yeah, well, that's that's where I come in. Yeah, I mean that was that was I thought that was very interesting, but um, I mean it it seems consistent to me with what uh, McKenna has said. What uh, um, what was the guy we had? I can't. Remember, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. Good night, Moon. Good night, Moon. Brandon. Brandon. Yes. B? Yes. Some of what he had to say about seeing the jungle. Uh, the jungle being the, the strongest component of the ayahuasca experience is, is experiencing the jungle and, and all that that entails. I wonder uh, if he'd be thrilled that you remember him as the good night moon guy. Well, that's <laughs> – if you could loop that, we could cure insomnia like without <laughs> a doubt. He's so calming. <laughs> Very true. So um, yeah, well, I mean, know, I, when you say he didn't uh, sound as McKenna-esque as you expected, or didn't talk about the same things, uh, is it because they did different things? I mean, did McKenna was McKenna more of a mushroom man than an ayahuasca man, or more of a something else kind of guy? Well, I mean, I think I think that uh, yeah, I think he was way in love with the the psilocybin experience as opposed to the um, the ayahuasca, although he spoke a lot about ayahuasca in that um, 
I think what McKenna, did, I mean, there, there's a story that, that Terrence tells about, uh, ayahuasca and, and having some of it in his refrigerator, in the back of his refrigerator for like a year. And he says, uh, you know, a friend of mine came over and we wanted to do this and I had some, so I took it out and I couldn't remember if the shaman had told me, don't shake it when you take it out of the refrigerator or shake it <laughs> when you take it out of the refrigerator. And he said that, uh, you know, basically, they. he said, so I just figured I'd be safe and shake it, <laughs> which decidedly must not have been a good idea. He said, because I used to play a song that on just about every other psychedelic experience I'd had, had I'd found this particular brand of music rather uh, inspiring or somewhat interesting. Um, but on this shaken up, stored for a year back of the refrigerator, ayahuasca, he said the most prevalent tone in this entire conversation uh, with the, the experience was to survive the song. Mm. <laughs> so clearly it had a, a different effect on him, but I do think he was more the mushroom. I think he, the conversations he had with that entity were a lot more prevalent in his stuff. Mm -hmm. I find it interesting that he talks about the ayahuasca spirit being a female, you know, embodied mm -hmm. uh, as a snake and the Kogi speak about, um, you know, uh, spirit in terms of a female, um, mm -hmm. as do, I believe, the Lakota, you know, in terms of Mother Earth and, and that sort of stuff. Streber's alien on the cover of Communion is female. The only voice I've ever heard in an abduction scenario or that I am enlightenment experience is a disembodied female voice. Yeah. What do we make of all this, especially in the face of patriarchal Christianity, which is what we were raised in? I mean, not, certainly not the indigenous people, but uh, Streber and I, at, at least, and uh, Graham Hancock. Yeah. Well, I think the repetitive um, being for me is is always a woman who is always the one that's there. If, if they're playing good cop, bad cop. Yeah, I said that before with the uh, experience that Lisa and I had. Up in right, um, right. Yeah. The, up in the country, that that the one that said, "Do you want to hold my hand?" was kind of a familiar one, and it always seems to be a she. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, it's just another one of the consistencies that seems to pop up, you know, for everybody uh, in that. But I have to say, with the mushroom, uh, I felt that to be decidedly feminine uh, to a certain degree. I I thought I, I felt that a number of times during that. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. I. I, the snake thing, the snake wrapping around him and putting its huge head up on his shoulder and its eye staring into his, that'd have freaked me right the hell out. I'd have been done, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I, clearly it's a different headspace than normal consciousness. So I guess you're willing to, I don't know, put up with a little bit more <laughs> if it seems friendly. My thought would be, is it going to squeeze me to death? Is that what's going to happen here? Well, see, I don't um, think that you do think that when you're there. I think, now, you know, I'm normal sure you, thought I'm sure goes not. out the window. Yeah. Normal concerns, <laughs> yeah. let's say, aren't even concerns right. in All magic right. land. But I think his his discussion at the X conference, if you can go back to that, is uh, it, it is the aspect of his discovery of saying that we didn't become interesting as a species until basically we had discovered you know, some of these compounds that effectively launched us into more creativity, language, mathematics, uh, able to extrapolate 
you know, large theories, complex theories, um, you know, art, music, these kind of things. And, you know, I've got to say in that aspect of it, I completely agree with him. Mm, all right. Well, I mean, uh, maybe uh, I'll put it out there as a maybe. The, the thing that makes me hesitate is that um, just with my own experience of not doing drugs, you mm-hmm. know, I'm doing things, you know, this here body's doing stuff that looks like informed motions, looks mm-hmm. like things I've seen, whirling dervish twirls, tai chi, yoga, certainly. Uh, all sorts of stuff that looks to be learned. Um, now, if if we're way back when, who knows what was going on in our heads? Maybe we had more DMT running around in our brains. Maybe uh, there was more natural access to uh, either other consciousnesses. I just made a plural of that. Uh, or... or or just this, whatever this layer of information is that we can somehow tap into, you know, whatever that ultimately ends up being. Mm-hmm. Um, we could have just had more access to that or just people in my situation or a similar situation where it just sort of comes to them in some idiot savant sort of way. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I can see that. I mean, when you look at, uh, I mean, I found it especially interesting, the cave art part of it. You know, when you're looking at stuff that's before a certain time, uh, it just seems to be. I mean, like he presented, it just seems to be a complete dis- departure from normal stick figure throwing a spear at a at a stick figure ox or a stick figure giraffe or whatever. When you look at these ones uh, uh, from the what's it, Chauvet? I think it was caves. Um, they are extraordinarily abstract looking. They are. There are the the mythical beings of the the you know the kind of coupling of the the head of a bull and the the, the you know the the body of a man and uh, the woman with the head of a leopard or a lion and that kind of those 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 coupling of those two things is like really prevalent and and there was also uh, I think it was a stag and this stag had this immense rack immense antler rack. That was just far beyond normalcy. This was not something that they saw. This is something that they I – mean, it was just this abstract concept they were able to put forth. So uh, I mean whether they got there with um, uh, with a psychedelic compound or whether they got there through starvation or, or – there, there's what, a whole lot about, of ways to get out of your mind. I mean <laughs> – Well, what, what about the possibility? I guess what I'm trying to get at maybe is that, that that's sort of what they evolved away from, that, that – they were embedded in this larger reality, and the more they focused on something, you know, art, culture, you know, whatever those beginning initial phases of of society and, and symbolic thinking were, once they started sort of concentrating on those, and maybe it was only simply because they were new things to, to do, you know? Maybe that was like the original origin was like, here's this new faculty in the, in the brain to be able to do these things, that maybe they slowly dragged themselves out of that larger picture that, you know, say cats and dogs are still in when you see them like looking around at stuff and you don't know what they're looking at. Maybe that's right. the way we were back then, you know, just stepping out of the animal and into the human. Well, I mean, I would I would go along with that if it weren't for the fact that, you know, when you're talking about, I don't know, extraordinarily primitive peoples that I think they'd have bigger things to worry about than sitting around in the dark trying to think of things they'd be thinking of how do what am i going to eat tomorrow i've got to get to sleep how am i going to stay warm um i don't know i, I don't know, I don't know. this novel thing this new thing i mean 
we've got bigger things to worry about and we don't do any of them. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, well, that's because we're occupied by a whole lot more than ancient man. <laughs> well, know? but if ancient man steps out of instincts grip and can suddenly think symbolically and create these things and, and attribute meaning to them and, mm-hmm. and create architecture and things like that. I mean, Whoa, now you've got this whole new palette to play with. Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, that's the ultimate shiny object uh, up until the TV. I would have to say, well, what facilitated that? I mean, beside what? Well, I mean, what? You know, just what would have what well, would have sparked that? What would have kicked that off? That I don't know. But the thing the thing that separates us right from animals is the larger frontal lobe. Isn't that the thing that we have? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just taking shrooms or some hallucinogen wouldn't have sparked a larger frontal lobe. Well, there is a development of uh, – and McKenna talks about this in one of his lectures is that uh, in the course of a certain amount of time, the human brain or the human capacity to think um, expanded exponentially within a very short period of time. And so far as McKenna knew at the time, and I don't know how long ago the lecture was, uh, you know, anthropologists, uh, they had no idea why this happened, which was essentially what he was saying was that, you know, the – when when man found mushroom or man found any psychedelic compound whatsoever that was raw within nature um, is when alphabets and uh, art and music and all of these things these things seem to have come forth out of that mind expanding experience you know so i don't I, I mean i don't know that any of this is factual i mean that i don't even think that they're saying 100% that this is what it is i mean i'm not sold on uh, what i'm saying either I, I think it could very well go exactly as graham hancock is suggesting but mm-hmm. uh, i just uh, you know i don't i don't see any evidence that that a hallucinogen would physically i mean it would expand your mind but it wouldn't expand your brain so the brain expansion was already there and we're assuming that the mind expansion didn't immediately go with that brain expansion it was waiting for some hallucinogen to flip a switch well i mean again we don't know uh we don't know the the physiological development of early man uh over the course of say i don't know 500 a thousand years or what what have you what is the genetic response to no psychedelic compound and all of a sudden one introduced into the mix and then from there where does it go does it actually do something to the to the brain that is continuing to do that in you know in in time when you're talking about a, a you know a human being that is completely untouched by any of this stuff you know when, once you introduce that compound into society and it becomes frequently used what does that do then to the reproductive the you know the 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 offspring across so, the board don't you well sure absolutely yeah absolutely I mean why just uh, well I mean you know frontal lobe uh i mean <laughs> but no but, but you're but I, I thought what you were getting at was that maybe i, I am reducing it to physicality <laughs> well i thought you were, I yeah, thought you were I saying mean, that perhaps the intake of this stuff produced the frontal lobe no i'm Is saying over the course of time you have to wonder if it didn't have some kind of effect on on the brain as a whole in the development of of early man from one point to another did it have something to do with the capacity of thought and the capacity of yeah of the brain in in certain ways yeah I don't know um, I definitely think more study needs to be done to find out you know when was you know when when did these people actually find a compound like that and then learn to survive or use it well I think uh, this this riddle is easy because uh, I saw on national I think it was National Geographic 
mm-hmm. this feral boy who is now a feral man uh, who was discovered, mm-hmm. who was raised by monkeys and found. Uh, and so now he's an adult, and but he's got the brain uh, capacity of a, a kindergartner. Mm. Let's just give him some acid and see what happens. That'd be cool. I mean, really? You want to give him a ring? (laughs) We can try and score him some shrooms? When we're done here, I'll Skype him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I Um, Skype all the kindergartners. Right. Oh, Oh, Jesus. There it is. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know. It's a really interesting theory and – and actually, when you know Graham shows some of these cave paintings, and he shows also that at a certain point in time, this is where we start seeing very, very strange-looking beings being introduced into all sorts of cave art, and and many of them, you know, little bodies, humongous heads, you know. And I'm not one of those guys who don't, who will normally say, "Oh my God, look at that! That's got to be an alien. That's got to be something." I think. 99.9% of all of the stuff that people put forth in biblical artwork, uh, I think, to my satisfaction, has been more than explained as completely mundane things right. uh, or, or uh, you know, abstract concepts of uh, – um, I think the most popular one is that uh, uh, Virgin Mary and, and baby Jesus and you've got the big scene out behind him. There's a guy on a – on a little outcropping or a point of land over the water, and he's he's got his hand up to his to his eyes, and he's looking at this what looks like a, a goddamn flying saucer right there in the air with you know gold around it and all this kind. Of, and apparently that's his hat. Right. <laughs> he's he's not looking; he's thrown his hat. And this was something that apparently the Pope of the time had done a lot of, and so this was included in the painting. Everybody looks at that, and goes flying saucer. Um. But I have to say that some of these cave paintings are very strange. You had mentioned an experience that you had had, I think, when your granddad passed away, that you know he his face began to take on the oh, yeah. in the yeah. state that you were in. His face began to take on this very strange appearance. That the longer you looked, the more intense it got, and it seemed to reflect this this cave painting um, that that you see. I, I believe the one you were referring to was the one with a lot of white. Faces with these deep set dark eyes that were rather large and yeah. and, and ovalisk, and I had just saw that on TV the other day, and harkened back to seeing the one that was crawling out of the fractal that night. That is that shape, that slant, and that 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 smooth oval shape of that eye. That that's that's pretty much what I saw. Um, so all these things seem to come up in the historical record on cave art at about this time, and again. Where is this coming from? Is this coming from purely some sort of external source that all of a sudden is just putting its finger into the well of humanity, or did somebody, you know, discover the mushroom because they were starving to death? Were they starving to death, and that set them off on this alternate state of consciousness? Who, who the hell is to say? We we don't know. Um, but I, I think it's a definitely a fascinating concept that you know. When did we really become interesting? When when did we when did we come apart from the rest of the animals on the planet? And I think that McKenna, I think uh, Graham, they both make pretty strong case that you know the psychedelics are what kind of you know set that spark off, and uh, and we went from there. So what what do you make of this? And I guess shoot, I wish I'd thought of this when uh, when we were interviewing him, but. So he's he's in the ayahuasca world. He's, he says he takes ayahuasca and suddenly he's immersed in this jungle setting, and that's where he usually sees uh, the snake woman or the snake 
spirit. And um, But one fine time, or maybe it was two, but at least the once, he had the abduction experience. Yeah. That seemed to sort of rip through that vision in some way and be kind of scary, and he sort of called it off. Uh, hey, why didn't the spirit queen of that realm come to his aid or interact with that vision or anything like that? I mean, Good isn't that question. interesting? <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I think it is. Uh, I think that the, I think the way that he described that as a, as a big funnel or column of light that seemed to be coming out of something that was in the air, you know, above him. I mean, and that's not by any stretch anything unusual. I mean, there is a guy um, who has lived in the Amazon all his life, and he is an ayahuasca artist, and he has drawn things that can only be. Uh, some form of what we would call a flying saucer or a craft of some sort, some of them very weird looking. Why wouldn't she come to his aid at that point? I I don't know. I mean, is that something that comes and goes or is that something you only feel on the onset and from there you're on your own? (laughs) I don't know. I found it interesting that he could call it off at all. (laughs) Well, call it off by opening his eyes by right. Right. In the way that you Uh, call off a shroom vision. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which makes I mean, it sound like, to say it out loud like that makes it sound like this is all just hallucinatory, just a dream or something like that. But it really does not feel that way when you're immersed in it. It feels like virtual reality. I mean, it feels like yeah, you are yeah. the scene that you're looking at, that you're immersed in. Go back to the whole definition of what's a hallucination. What does that mean? You know, I mean, that, you know, and well, then that are, goes. Well, I mean, you know. there are certainly. All right. Well, let's put it this way. There are rigid physical boundaries here. Mm-hmm. And there are sensical, sensible responses to things here. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know what responses are like in in hallucination world. Certainly, there are no physical boundaries in the way that we have. But it seems that that if something were genuinely invading some other spirit's place and it didn't want it there, or it was threatened by it, or something. There would have been some sense of that. There would have been some retaliation or some inviting in or something yeah. other than what what you could just construe as a nightmare just in, you know, took over a dream. Right. Well, I mean, uh, what you have to keep in mind is exactly what he said. And and, and I can sort of relate in, in the very slim amount of experience that I had was that uh, within the experience there is – Joy, there is a benign presence to it all, but that there are also things in there that seem inherently bad or evil or dark or but what have not you. I mean, connect he, with each you know, other. I, I mean, do you get the? Sense I mean, from, apparently not. From listening uh, I mean, to McKenna, appara- does he ever talk about them knowing about each other when they happen, or happening at the same time, or one chasing off the other, or anything like that? I've never heard. I mean, the only thing that I can say about McKenna was, as far as what he said about DMT, and this was in a very uh, hard to listen to piece of audio because the quality was horrible. But uh, he spoke about DMT and he said, I don't know anyone who's done it as much as I have. Um, and, you know, I wish more, we were, this is an area that we really need to get more consensus on. But as I went back to that place and became familiar, I mean, it took him, I, I can't tell you how many times, but he said a lot of experiment with DMT where before he could even get a handle on what was going on. And after so many times in that place, he could finally sort of 
build the story that you often hear of the large vaulted ceiling room that's white. The most recent lecture that I've heard him talk about the DMT experience on, I heard something new that I'd never heard him say before. I mean, we're all familiar, I think, with the white round room, <laughs> uh, or at least I definitely am when it comes to certain experiences. But one thing that he mentions is that there's the definite feeling that it's underground, hmm. you know, which I thought was really, which I'd never heard him mention before. Uh, but he said of the DMT elves, the, the machine elves, that he tykes as he called them, that the more that he went back, the more he realized that they could have a fearsome way about them. In other words, they they you know when he first showed up into that place, as he calls it, uh, it the overall feeling is hurrah, you're here, welcome. Why did you stay away so long? Um, and then he said, there's a moment before they're on him. Meaning there's a moment before they're – and they're singing these things into existence right in front of him. And hold it here. Look at this one. Look at this one. Look at that one. And there, he says at that point, they begin to say, now you do it. <laughs> and it's hysterical to hear him talk about this because he says, that, you know, when I first realized what was going on, I just said – I just want to go back to New York, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're like, no, no, forget later for that, you know, do this. And, and they begin chanting, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it to the point where he said, I almost became afraid of them because they seemed remarkably incessant that I do this. And I was just unsure whether I could in that space. You can do it. He discovered, but later on, as he became more and more familiar with these tykes, he said, I wouldn't turn my back on them because they began to take on almost a personality of like the used car salesman, um, you know, f- feeling to it. It had a very slick, hey, 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 you know, snappy, snappy. Uh, uh, and that, I mean, again, that goes all the way back to when we talked to Reagan Lee. And she was talking about the little furry beings around her bed. She wouldn't turn her back on them, but they were cute and they seemed chatty and funny. But there was something about them that wasn't quite right. And I think the whole of the experience can have that that flavor to it where it, it has many masks. It can put on many different faces and it can be that friendly, calming goddess of ayahuasca or it can be – it can be different things. That's that's the I think that's the point. And I always go back to what you hear from some people in the psychedelic community is that, well, that wasn't my experience. What Terrence describes definitely wasn't anything I've seen. And I go back again to dose, dose, dose uh, based on weight, based on all of that. And also set and setting. I'm sure all of that figures into it as well. But dose, dose, dose. What is the dose? What is that threshold experience? What is it? What is the amount that you have to get past and have the courage to get past to get to that experience um, with DMT or any drug? I think it's like a, a the tuning of a radio. You know, you can nail right into you know rock one hundred and one, or you can be just a skew left or right. And what do you get when you go a skew left or right? I, I don't know. Um, so. I think it's dependent on dose. I think it's dependent on setting. And I think this thing wears many faces. And I think that 
what one man might see as the goddess and experience that might later transmorgify into, you know, the alien experience. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really don't know. I, the the two meeting, I think the two are the same thing. You know, you can hear the the funny little chatty, friendly, hurrah, glad to see you DMT elves, or you can see the fact that they're actually little slimy car salesmen who are <laughs> insisting that you do something and I wouldn't turn my back on them. I found that to be really kind of strange. And I guess the more that you do it, the more comfortable or, or you get your legs, so to speak, in that place. And I guess maybe the more you're able to bring back or you know, the more you're able to remember. I, I don't know because um, uh, ayahuasca is not something that I would particularly want to do. I think Brandon had <laughs> huge balls to go down into a jungle with people we didn't know and drink that stuff and, right. and, and experience that. I mean, I think that takes guts. Like I know I ain't got, <laughs> so, um, I mean, who knows, who knows where all that, that comes from or goes to, it may all be the same thing. All right. The Jeff. So what's been going on in your world these last few weeks? I've been hunting ghosts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How's that going for you? Well, I mean, we could say at this point, even though this is our our first show of the new season, uh, that that uh, we've uh, – yes, yeah, season debut here. That's right. Um, that a lot has happened uh, since we were last with you all. Number one being that we lost Mac Tonys. Mm. There's something which was horrifyingly shocking and sudden and out of nowhere – Henceforth, why we've dedicated this episode to Mac. Uh, I think he would have really enjoyed this one. I mean, that's just completely we, – we got that news just as we were going to Gettysburg to the Nesbitt house to stay overnight. And, um, man, I couldn't get him out of my head like all weekend. It was just uh, – I for some reason, my mind just wouldn't accept that that had happened to him. Um, so, I mean – that's a huge loss as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, but then we went to the Nesbitt house and, uh, um, uh, that'll be coming up on I don't know, next episode after this. I mean, right after this, we'll be doing that, I suppose. Yeah. If, if we get our act together. Yeah. I mean, it sounds yeah. like it'd be, it's going to be a lot of editing. It might, might end up being a two parter. No, I don't, I don't think it will be because what, no. what, what evidence we did get, I think that we're going to be able to play on a on a radio show. I think is going to be fairly easy to, for me to snip out and send you, and then you'll just drop that in when I go and listen to this. <laughs> so we'll be able to do that. But I have to say, I mean, there wasn't a ton that we got um, in in the audible stuff. I think there was a hell of a lot of personal experiences with that. Um, so I don't want anybody to be disappointed in what we got, but there was a, there's a hell of a lot to talk about when it regards to that place. Now, I have to say that since we've come back from there, I, I think I had said on a previous show or I think when 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 Mark was on with us, I said that I was finding that area of study of the paranormal a hell of a lot more interesting than the UFO stuff is at the time because I, there, there, there's something to me really appealing about the aspect of being able to go to a place that is supposedly active and being able to possibly capture something there. Uh, within a night or even in the daytime. I, I, I find the, the UFO stuff a lot more fleeting and, uh, and elusive uh, than this. But 
Uh, I have been up to Gettysburg uh, since then. I went I went back th- this past weekend and the weekend before, and uh, and it's it's interesting in the aspect of I'm seeing the same type of progression that you would see within a u- ufological investigation where. You know, what's the old adage is shit doesn't stink till you stir it. Um, and I see that within the ghost stuff. I definitely see that uh, that what EVPs I started out by just toying around here at the house with, which were very hard to hear, and some of which nobody could make out, nobody could really even hear to a certain degree. They were so faint. And, um, you know, going up to the Nesbitt place, we got some EVP. That, again, aren't fantastic, but the fact that we were sitting alone in an absolutely deathly silent house uh, to hear anything is interesting. Mm. Uh, anything that sounds like a voice. And we did get that. Um, and, and one I have to say is, is a little bit unnerving in, in how clear it is. Um, but I've since been back to Triangle Field. And uh, and Devil's Den and all of these places that are steeped with haunting stories, and uh, and I got an EVP that uh, I didn't even have to raise the audio level to hear. There's this again, this progression of oh, more of that. Sure, here it is. Uh, is that what you're after? More? Okay, here's more. Uh, you know, when you're actively seeking these things out, it seems that the level of the quality. The volume, the clarity seems to get deeper and deeper and bigger and bigger. As you put your finger into the pie, there's more and more cherries to be popped out. So I'm I'm completely fascinated with it right now. And I and personally, you know, um, like I told you in an email, I'm steering away from the UFO stuff lately because it's retarded. <laughs> I think the whole field is insane. Well, I mean, yeah. really, really, it's it's crazy. And I don't know really that I that I care to, to do anything actively in it anymore for the simple aspect of, uh, do I really, I mean, I guess already my name is associated with it, but do I want to continue to associate my name with it as insane as it's getting? I don't really think I do. Well, <laughs> I'm do fairly think, what disgusted. Do you, what do you think is more insane now than, than ever? I mean, isn't it, hasn't it always pretty much? Well, well, it's, it's always had the fringe element to it. It's always had that, but I think again, we can go back to Maggie Jackson with the advent of the internet and, and the effort, the, the, the whole notion of anybody being able to have their say or anybody being able to have a platform instantly on the internet. Um, I think that the fringe element and the lack of critical thought in this is so pervasive right now that it is overshadowing most of the people who think about this in a critical way. Um, I don't, and the more I look, the more you know, well, the less I see people out there who are critical. Let me ask you: you know? Do you think that's a function of the fact that the people who appeared to be critical were nuts and bolts people, and since that has proven pretty much to not be the case, uh, that they're th- then you're stuck with nothing. I mean, if you, no, if, I mean, if you I... only have one coherent philosophy, and that philosophy ends up to be invalid, then it's pretty much you've got lunacy, and you've got people who are. Uh, well-intentioned but wrong, and that's what you're. No, I think there's. 
No, I think there's definitely been people in this for years that have that have you know steered away from the nuts. Jacques Vallée has steered away well, from yeah, the nuts yeah, and bolts. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look at the crap there that he few, got. You know, sure, <laughs> oh, there it is. Uh, yeah. No, in jokes. Uh, I mean, yeah, in jokes, there, people. There's there's been that uh, there's been that thread that's continuously gone through this there's that it is bigger that, that it is. Thread. There's always been that thread, but yeah. the you know the vast majority of it was nuts and bolts, which is appealing, mm-hmm. in which uh, we fell for at least once in our lives. Um, sure. So what I'm saying is, if that's like, you know, if you take a Stanton Friedman, who is, is someone who is well spoken and well thought out, but just wrong. You know, if he wasn't just wrong, say, five, ten years ago, and now it's pretty much conclusive almost that he is just wrong, then you're stuck with people who, like him, were, you know, great thinkers of their time, but now are sort of irrelevant, like Newtonian physics. It's irrelevant. I'd I'd say about relevant by whose standards, though? Where, where Where are you applying that benchmark? Uh, that, that there's not a nuts and bolts thing going on that, that there's no, there's no giant conspiracy with the government that's panning out. Well, we'll see. I think, I I think when you step back and take a a larger look at the, the public, the interested UFO public in this, that we're in the minority in that, you know, I mean, I, I, and I honestly, earnestly believe that. I mean, I've, I've had enough interactions with the masses uh, you know, at abovetopsecret.com or any place that you want to go on the net. And the notion of taking this out of the nuts and bolts field to most people is absolute heresy. It still is. Yeah, but the point is like the nuts and bolts field, because the nuts and bolts field has not produced the nuts and bolts answers that it promises, right. uh, it's turned into lunacy. I mean, in in, in spite of uh, truth, there's just lies and crazy. And so... So that's what's happened. It, it's not as though it's not as though I don't know. I'm just wondering: is, is it as though like the internet came along, and so that means more morons can just come along and say whatever they want, or is it that we're living in the failure of um, of the nuts and bolts theory gone awry? Whether oh. most people believe that that's true still or whatever is irrelevant because they're 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 still clinging to it, but it's making them neurotic and and <laughs> believing things like Obama's gonna you know. Uh, disclose something in a month. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I keep hearing right. insane people say this to me. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I know where you're going. I mean, uh, I mean, again, I, the lunacy doesn't exclude the nuts and bolts. That that's the, that's a big problem for the nuts and bolts. People is that, you know, you've got people like Greer out there who are saying that, you know, they can vector in these things and they're structured objects, they're structured craft of some sort. You know, that speaks to nuts and bolts to me as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so all of these people are latching onto that. And the government conspiracy thing is more alive and kicking. Uh, you know, all of that conspiracy stuff has taken a quantum leap from 10 years ago. I mean, it is so out there now that you know, you listen to somebody talk about this. You're like, I need to go get. Uh, I, I got to go to the bathroom. I mean, you're just trying to find an excuse to get out of the conversation. See, I find that hard uh, to believe because ten years ago or so, you had the X Files, which was huge. Mm-hmm. So I would think that. Oh like, yeah, believe me, I know. Rampant. It would have been like, oh my god, you know, between that and uh, Gray's eat strawberry well, well, ice cream from Falcon well, <laughs> or Condor or whoever. Yeah, yeah, but nowadays, <laughs> look what look what you've got nowadays. You've got. Uh, people out there claiming clandestine meetings with people 
that they couldn't possibly have clandestine. I mean, it's it's taken a quantum leap into the stupid, is what I'm saying. <laughs> not that it's not that it's not there. No, it's no, always it's a, it has taken a quantum leap into the stupid, but but I don't think the masses are paying attention to any of it. Whereas oh, the really? They oh, well, I, I would encourage you really? to go to abovetopsecret.com and say that after an hour spent there. I mean, no, I, I think very much people are still extraordinarily hooked on. The government knows, goddammit, and we want to know, and they must tell us because they must tell us because <laughs> we deserve it. Um, I, I, that is so prevalent and thick right now. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think – Again, the circles that we hang in, the people that we wanted to, to talk with 10 years ago, 20 years ago, would have been the fringe. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, there's fringe and there's just dumb. Uh, I, you know, let's break it into that category. There's well, the stupid. You, I guess this is what I'm saying. You know? All of ufology at this point is, according, you know, as far as the mainstream is concerned, is the fringe, is it not? I mean, it hasn't caught on the way ghost hunting has or any of that sort of stuff. It's. I mean, yes, above top secret has a million people, but if there are, you know, two hundred and fifty million people out there, that's that's not a lot. Yeah, and that's not to say that there aren't critically thinking people at, at above top secret. There, there is, there definitely is, but I see the majority of that populace over there as being, of, uh, 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 I don't know, they're they're how do you put this nicely? Well, you don't. They're a step back. <laughs> They're, they're, I feel like they're a step backwards and like you're still in the 1990s, late 1980s uh, storyline here. You need to catch up to where things are going and it's very hard when someone gets their answer of the government knows, they won't tell us. Well, that's why we don't know. That's not it. Um, I've got to uh, say, you, you just reminded me on that note, since this is a new season, Jeff – uh, allow me to be the first to burn a bridge, which is that um, Joe Montaldo, who hosts this podcast on UPRN. Probably not. 105.3 <laughs> New Orleans. Right. Or not. Uh, yeah. Is really a, a giant fucking moron. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put that. Uh. He put up a, a Facebook thread about... Um, you know, did what? What is alien sex like? What is it? Why? Why are aliens having sex with people? What is that like? Uh, you know, and I, I thought I get, you know, I gave my typical, you know, this is horseshit answer, uh, and then followed up with, you know, what I'm hoping is eloquent facts, such as we don't know what we're even talking about. So, what <laughs> do you mean? And that, you know, and that just goes ignored by him. And his next post later is about how we know for a fact that there are nine species of greys. There's nine types of gray aliens alone, let alone the other the other aliens. Nine types of gray aliens. Go ahead. And they hang out in cemeteries. Yeah, well, that was something he had said <laughs> elsewhere. Is that yeah, yeah, that they hang yeah. out in cemeteries, you know, waiting to collect the dead. I mean, it's just it makes me want to pull my hair out. It, it really does. And, and I looked at that and it's like before I remember saying, like, I don't mind being associated. <laughs> Jeff's showing me that he's going bald. Uh, I don't mind being associated um, with with schmucks because it's like banking. It's like what bank isn't evil. You know, it's like you, you have no choice. Right. I mean, at some point, if you want to have some sort of distribution of this show, you're going to deal with people 
that you're not uh, going to like in life or you're not going to agree with philosophically or whatever the case may be. And that's fine when it's quiet, but when I see it in my face, I got to call it what it is, which is yeah, he's a fucking moron. And he's not doing this okay. field any favors. And no. he promotes shit. And mm. um, on the one hand, I, you know, I'd like to say, well, I, oh, then we shouldn't be on his thing. But maybe we're the best thing on there, for all I know. Maybe we're the only hope that his network has. I don't know. Well, I don't know what the other shows are. <laughs> I, I don't know, but, uh, um, you know, I've been thinking for the past X amount of weeks that uh, maybe we ought to just bow out of the UPRN network family. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, to, to be honest with you, I don't think we're being broadcast there anyway. Uh, I think maybe the first X amount of episodes, yes, but after that, I, I don't think that he was coming on and, and, and getting the download links off the homepage. So, I, I mean, we don't, we don't, we never got a single response on our message board whatsoever from anybody down there or anybody who listened on that network or found us through that or anything else. And he certainly um, hasn't chimed in with our making fun of the fact that we're not really on UPRN. No, no, we haven't <laughs> so, got anything from so that. So he's not paying so. attention, and he's a fucking idiot. So I think that you combine those two things, and uh, yeah, mm. it's time to go. Yeah, I, th- I think um, I, I think we do well to. Uh, I mean, if we want to be on some network, which I don't see the point of being on anyway, but it'd be nice to uh, try and hook up with the Black Vault Network or somebody like that, somebody with integrity. you know and uh and that would be good but uh but i'm not chasing after that that's that's here nor there we got a damn huge audience for for no longer than we've been around and i'm happy about that so thanks to everybody for coming back and listening um you know for the new season we got man we got a lot of stuff coming up too some really good stuff well i should say that i went to the uh the harvard gathering of experiencers um, and I don't know that I can really even talk about it. I thought I would be able to, but, and I, and I will eventually, um, but I mean, some people were uncomfortable with, uh, having a large public role, although I think everyone seemed to want to get together and maybe do small invite only, uh, workshop type stuff the way it was the weekend that I went, um, and there were some, you know, non-experiencers at this thing. So some people are comfortable doing that. Some people want to come out in a big way and go on TV and say, look, this is real, uh, blah, 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 you know, whatever whatever the message would be. Um, but until they get that sorted out, I guess I will keep mum about it, except to say that at the end of um, this workshop, we did a little uh, meditation, a group meditation there. You know, I would call it a moment of silence. It was really just, you know be quiet and breathe kind of thing at the end of which, uh, the person who had, you know, asked that we do this, um, brought us out by saying, you know, three coming back two coming back one, you know, you're present in the room, you know, that sort of thing. And when she got to two, the door started shaking fiercely. Like the next thing would be if someone were pounding on it, it was the door handle was rattling and the door was <laughs> like that kind of ferocity. And I didn't have my eyes shut because I don't do group meditations. So, <laughs> so you were the little boy in church with your eyes open while everybody was bowing their heads, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the door was not locked. Nobody came into the room. You know, mm-hmm. the door didn't open. Um, and it wasn't a door that was out front. It was a door that was in the building. So there was a receptionist. Uh, you would have to go beyond that area to come in. And then, I mean, 
it, it sounded like somebody had locked themselves out and was shaking to get in or, or something like that, but that just wasn't the case. Well, he also said the door wasn't locked. Well, yeah, the door – well, that's why it wasn't the case, you know, right. outside of the fact that everyone was present and accounted for. So it was just – I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there as the timing of that was really incredible and the fact that it happened at all. I mean I wish I just leaped out of my seat and ran across the room and opened that door. But <laughs> right. uh, but it was funny because my, my mom went with me and she uh, – you know, I asked her, so what did you make of that? And she said, well – you know, it was probably, you know, it sounded like somebody had come into the room. And I, and I told her I had my eyes open the whole time. There wasn't nobody coming into that room. I know that's what it right. sounded like. <laughs> mm. And so then yeah. she was like, huh, that is weird. So I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. It's like a do-do-do-do moment. But I do yeah. want to say that um, we're going to have uh, a number of guests on. Uh, I made some good friends there, actually, um, and met, uh, well, a whole bunch of people. And so some of them are going to come on the show. Some of them you have heard of and some of them you have not. And their stories will amaze you. And I got to say, it was it was just really impressive and amazing to be in a room full of experiencers with the professional credentials these people have and the articulation that they have to the point where I'm entertaining things that I otherwise wouldn't. You know, like a, like a woman, for instance, who... Her job is she speaks with animals. And I think maybe she said specifically turtles, but animals. She she speaks to animals. Like, I would never listen to this in a million years, except that it, she did not not make sense to me, you know? And then uh, somebody did a presentation, uh, a physicist who's not an experiencer, um, basically running down a list. And we'll have him on the show. Um, Running down the list from abductions to channeling to talking to animals to ghost hunting, all of this stuff. He runs down the list and he says, you know, the skeptical response to that is, oh, yeah, 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 that's just the abduction people. Oh, yeah, 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 that's just the ghost people. Oh, yeah, 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 that's just the people who speak to animal spirits. And you run down this list and you realize that the list is pretty damn long to just keep disregarding people, you know, to just keep saying, oh, that's those people. It's a list of those people. And mm. um, and then he goes on to basically illustrate through physics how all of this stuff is possible. And so, um, like I said, we'll have him on the show and he can he can flesh this out for us and you will learn some amazing things. Uh, I know mm. I did. So, I don't know. It was just I've been in experiencer situations. I've been uh, to one sort of group meeting after a conference and, of course, the ex-conference stuff as well. And I'm always uncomfortable. I'm always, you know, the, the the people who claim to be experiencers I don't necessarily believe or, I, you know, I think they're delusional or not deep or something. Their response to it seems off somehow. And these people, it was completely different, you know. So hmm. I was really glad I went. Um, if they do another thing, you know, which they're going to soon, you know, I'll go again. And um, but I don't know if I don't know. If it just stays that, if it just stays like group meetings, then I won't go after that because I have no want for group therapy or talking about my stuff or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so only if something evolves out of this would I go a third time. But I would definitely go again, and I would uh, hope that you could make it. You couldn't make it this time, but I hope you could make it. Right. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely – I was very sorry that I couldn't make it. Um, but that was that was literally the weekend after Gettysburg and – you know, at some point you have to do something with your house that, you know, your wife's been wanting you to do for a while. And <laughs> so I had to do that. Right. But um, I don't know. I, I'm, 
you know, I hope you won't be disappointed when I say this, and that I don't care how much physics are applied. I will not put forth any effort for talking to animals. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, or channeling. Uh, yeah. You know, I there's there's just not a way I can fit that into my box <laughs> for things. I can fit a, lot, fit a lot of things in there, but I don't know. You know what it was? It was like I was sitting there, I was listening to it, and I'm like, and you know, of course, my my BS meter goes on immediately because sure. I just can't hear this stuff. And then I'm thinking, well, you know, what's going on with me? Is that any different than channeling? I mean, the difference is that I don't speak, you right. know? Well, so, I mean, I got to leave some of this crap open, you know? And and so, and then I, I guess I get into the prejudice of, well, geez, if these people were invited here by these other people who seem trustworthy and, and blah, 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 then there's got to be a reason. There must be something trustworthy about them. So right. I don't know. I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt until proven wrong, I guess. Right, right. I don't know. That's just. I mean, the fact that you don't speak, I think, says a lot. You, you don't, you don't speak. <laughs> yeah, you're not saying things and putting information out there like fourth density reptilians and stuff like that. So that's not part of your repertoire. I mean, uh, not yet. <laughs> if it is, this show is over. <laughs> um. So you know, I don't know. That's just that's just something I I, you know. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it, but you know, I'll, I won't go quietly into that night. I can assure you. <laughs> but I'm not uh, saying it was all hunky dory. I did have some problems with some of the stuff going on there. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, nothing major, but just my own peccadillos, I guess. But yeah, when I yeah. can talk about it, I'll talk about it. Sure, sure. Um, well, and the people coming on will, I'm sure, bring it up in one way or another. So, um, oh, I should say this though, because this is also. Always creepy when this happens. One of the people there um, was um, uh, 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 Jim Weiner. Man, do I love saying that name, Jim Weiner. <laughs> uh, Adolescence. You, you may remember as you're right as um, one of the twins from the Allagash abductions. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much, he saw me, and he just sort of like stalked across the room and was like, "I know you." I know you from somewhere. Were you at the Langley conference or Laughlin conference, whatever it is? Like, uh, no. And then we just had to keep going through this. No, I know you. I know. And I'm like, well, I write for UFO magazine. Maybe you've seen my picture there. He's like, no, I don't read, I don't read UFO magazine. He's like, no, no, no. I've met you. I know you from somewhere. And then this woman comes across the other way. And she's like, yeah, I do too. She's like, I knew, I knew you from somewhere. I'm like, I, I got nothing. I've never met either of you. I've never been to any conferences. I don't know. And to have it be the Allagash guy is like <laughs> you were you were one of the guys naked on the bench across the room, staring yeah. blankly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. And let me say this: you know, when we first met at the X conference, I think that, and, and since since that point, since that initial meeting, this really hasn't crossed my mind again. But I'm like, uh, I first meet this guy, and I go. Very young Jim Belushi here. This is what I say. <laughs> that could be it. You know. Here's the, now you know, here's the weird mind fuck thing, and I didn't tell Jim this because it's just so incomprehensible that I feel like I had to have been making it up. But when we, we went to dinner afterwards, mm-hmm. and um, and then I had this what appeared to be a like I had a deja vu moment, except I knew what the deja vu moment was, mm-hmm. and it was that I had a dream that. He asked me, did did we meet at the Laughlin conference? Like mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, 
he or his brother or or one of those guys because my friend Harold Egelm, who we've had on the show, uh, was trying to get one of them to come do the Culture of Contact conference. Ah, okay. And so I seem to remember a couple of years ago when we were trying to get them to do the Culture Contact conference, having a dream about one of them just because I'd heard their name or, or whatever. And then and then that was the dream. Was this? Was this scenario happening? Was that dream? But then I asked him if he knew Harold Egelm and he said no. So I'm thinking mm. that, that that's just, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Isn't that the weirdest thing when you have the deja vu and you remember where the deja vu came from? Yeah. And it was, I have this, mo- and it was this very moment. And it was like, bleh. There's a good question. There's a good question for our listeners. Deja vu. Um, I'm curious if, and I'll ask you this too, because I don't think we've ever talked about this. And this is, I would really like to have somebody on about deja vu. When I have deja vu, it is palpable. It is not just, hmm, I feel like I've been here before. It's like, uh, uh, it's almost choking mm-hmm. when I get it. It is so, I, I think I mentioned to you about the, the, the whole notion of me trying to meditate and then becoming aware of the, you know, I give up, I don't care, I'm never going to get it. You know, that, <gasps> that, that rushy type feeling, that's what deja vu is for me. It is, you know, something that kind of kicks, kicks me squarely in the teeth when I get it. Mm-hmm. And, and it stops me in my tracks when it happens and then everybody looks at me funny. Yeah, I'm curious how many people out there who are experiencers or not experiencers have that, very thick, very, I remember when I dreamed this deja vu type of experience because I don't think most people do. I mean, I've talked to Lisa, uh, I don't know, dozens of times about this and she says, no, mine's never really that strong. It's just a very subtle feeling, but still a little strange. It's never that, you know, bam hmm. type of feeling that's so strong. Mine is unbelievably strong. I mean, it's stopping your track strong. So, um, for you, what is that? Is it subtle for you, or is it? Is it? No, sometimes it's subtle, but palpable. sometimes it's it's so it it's palpable and it's on the tip of my tongue and it's annoying. It's like I, yeah. know, where that, yes. I know where that is, but yeah. you know. And then sometimes, like this, I mean, this isn't the only time. I remember where I know that I got that deja vu from. You know, I remember yeah. what the scenario is. Yeah, and uh, you know that's satisfying and weird at the same time. Except sometimes that- I'll have deja vu and I'll have like. Triple or quadruple deja vu. And I'm yes, like, what? What? yes. I'm like, what? And I'll yes. sort of, I'll have like the cloud or the flavor of those memories, but not the fully fleshed out. You know what I mean? Like enough of like a where does that come hint from? of where, yeah. what they are to 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 realize that. Yeah, no, I really did have this three or four times, but not enough to mm-hmm. say when. I don't yeah. know. Ah, yes, it kills yeah. me. And let's not forget that the DMT elves say as you leave that place. Deja vu. Deja vu. <laughs> That's what they say. I mean, you know. So, uh, But isn't there a scientific answer for deja vu? Like, didn't they discover where it is in the brain or something like that? There's a scientific answer for everything. Right. We're insane. <laughs> Come on. No, no. The scientific answer is always only the biological correlate to the actual thing that's going on. That is what I've right. discovered. So. Mistaken as the full answer. Whatever. Um... <laughs> dismissive um <laughs> thanks generation x that was very yes <laughs> that was very unforty something of you <laughs> right um so anyway um so you did that and i've been doing gettysburg and i'm going back again saturday because uh i'm hooked what can i say 
Are you sure yeah. you're not just avoiding the fact that A, you could very easily be doing this in your own home, and B, <laughs> you've got a, a dude in a cloth that comes and visits you, and mm. uh, which should, by all rights, be more fascinating than standing out in a field with a recorder. Yeah, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's not. What am I gonna What am I gonna show from that? I mean, I got nothing from that. You know, <laughs> I mean, the the outside person out there can look at that and go, "Yeah, he's just making that up." You know, I mean, I'm not, but it, it, it's certainly easy to dismiss. Whereas, yeah, but you know, for your if own I can personal, I'm saying for your own personal, for my own personal stuff. Journey. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's sure, sure, it's more interesting, but it's. It's so freaking sporadic and sudden that, you know, I mean, here lately at least, that before you even know what's going on or what conversation is happening, it's already over. <laughs> well, you know? you're saying that, that going, that driving, what is it, 45 minutes, an hour out of your way to a field is not, is not A, out of your way and B, also a sporadic thing? <laughs> um, it's not like you're having conversations with ghosts out there. You're, uh, you, I, I need to get out more. <laughs> I, I need I need to get out more. Leave I'm me alone. saying you call and, this guy <laughs> in. You do your best to call this guy in, and um and ask him. Call this guy you know, in. Tell yeah. him something that you can't know. Give him give him the DMT test. What can't I know? Hmm. And if he goes, you think this is real? Then screw it. Well, you go back out into the field with the recorder. <laughs> See, we've gone down that route before, and I got whipped in my sleep. I'm not really up for that anymore. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, but you got whipped for talking about it. Right. <laughs> That's what we do here. Well, you don't have to talk about it. You can just get the information. That does me a lot of good. Yeah, That's great. <laughs> I've already got – talk about it. I've already got stuff, you know, that is not going to be discussed. So it's, you know, like, and it's nothing earth shattering, but it's earth shattering for me, mm. you know. And 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 I have to say, you know, and I think I'm, I, I, well, I thought I was okay talking last time, but I'll say it anyway. There hasn't been a lengthy um, encounter like that since that last time. So I mean, you know, it, it's been. Uh, weird in one aspect that I see the figure of this person in other places, driving down the road, on the street corner, just for a glimpse or two, a little longer than, oh, I just imagined that or I misidentified that, a little bit longer than that, but still not. And it's not like I'm approached or I'm looked at or it's just it's just there and boom, then it's not there. Um, and since then, my mother told me, uh, we went to see paranormal activity. Um, and if you, and if you haven't, if you haven't seen paranormal activity, I highly encourage you not to go. (laughs) Um, but, uh, we, I, I, I picked her up and we went because my wife won't go see scary movies with me. So mom went with me. She enjoys them. And we got back to the house and I was dropping her off and she was sitting in the car with me and I said, look, you know, there's been a little bit more with this. I I told her everything from the initial experience uh, on and uh, we got out of the car. She, I told her about it, you know, and of course she is, um, she's a religious woman. So she kind of, again, that's her filter. That's where she views paranormal activities or contact with anything is going to be viewed through those 
her spiritual goggles in that sense. So, you know, are you, uh, she sounded like, like Nora, you sure this isn't angels? You know, are you sure this isn't an angel? <laughs> Your mom <laughs> I'm is sure Jewish Nori? Are you serious? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I looked over and for a second, her hair was jet black, like a Muppet with a mustache. Uh, no, uh, that's just, that's just her way of kind of enveloping the whole experience. And, and I said, no, mom, it's, it's not that it's something else. It's, it's, um, you know, it's outside of that, that envelope. I don't ascribe to that envelope that well. So I know it's, I don't, I don't feel it's that. Uh, and then when we got out of the car and we were walking towards the house, she goes, you know, I had a very strange experience the other night leaving your house. And I said, well, what? She said, your dad and I were going down the road from your place and I looked over and there's this person standing there wearing this black sheet <laughs> and he's walking beside the road and as we got closer, he just completely faded away and I asked your dad, did you see that? And he said, no. So she saw the same thing as I've been seeing, which is exactly that. You know, you see someone – you see that they're covered head to toe in something black. It's flowing. It's blowing. You look away for a second or you blink and it's not there anymore. Um, so now at least mom has seen something of this. If only that little snippet, if that's fine by me because I think that the purpose of her seeing him was to tell me um, that because I've had the thought as of late and I'll say this on the air. I don't really care. Um, there's a part of me that has pondered this to the ninth degree and and has come away by saying that in some way I feel that this guy I don't know how to say it other than other than to say it outright and let the chips fall where they are is to say that he's not in my head. He's not a product of imagination or fantasy or lunacy. Uh, but there is a part of him that seems to be me. I'm not sure exactly how I can put my finger on that or describe it any better, but there is there seems to be a certain level of familiarity about it, and it's the only thing I can ascribe the familiarity to is that in some part uh, of this experience is that he is me or he is part of me or something like that. But it's definitely manifested. I've touched, you know. This I've I've held it in my hands. I've actually put material in my hands that he's wearing and said, "This is real. I am touching it. I can feel it. Tactile. The whole thing is. It's all there." And it, and it goes back to, let's go full circle with the Graham Hancock thing. In the interview, he discussed where you're confronted with things with ayahuasca that you can't deny. You can't lie to her because she knows. And that is precisely the experience that I've had with this man. You cannot lie to him. When he asks you something about yourself, you either answer it in an honest way and you humiliate yourself or you perceive to humiliate yourself or you lie. And if you lie, it just stares you in the face until you tell the truth. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like being, do you have enough gum for everyone in class, Jeff? You know, uh, funny no? enough, um, <laughs> I just saw the movie The Box the other day, and um, I can't remember. Uh -huh. They had a classroom scene, and I don't remember who they were talking about. Who you know, some some famous person, probably Dante, but I don't remember. Um, who said that hell is being an eternity with people? <laughs> hell is being uh -huh. in a room with people uh, and people who who know you. Uh huh. 
that that you can't there's you know basically what you just said that that you cannot hide from anything mm-hmm. from that that's hell i thought huh well you, you, yeah that's you're completely naked yeah well it's interesting I mean, and, and that Graham, that's hell, that that's not a good thing it, well yeah i right 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 i mean you do feel exposed and vulnerable and that's somewhat uncomfortable but again it, it it's come down to me and i've said this before in years past that uh, in all the time in ufology, with all of the, with all of the wacky stuff that's happened, and and then the, the even wackier experience of of meeting certain people, and 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 then, you know, people coming and going from my life and all of this, um, I've learned next to nothing about the experience itself, what it is, where it comes from, where it's going to, how it's evolving. I I know next to nothing about that, but I've learned. Volumes upon volumes about me, and that's exactly what this current experience seems to be doing the same thing. It's like it's it's not telling me a great deal about its origins or where it's coming from. I'm not able to gather evidence from it to show other people. I'm not even allowed to talk about the totality of this, but I'm learning volumes about me, and some of it is decidedly uncomfortable. Some of the things there's no way I'd go on a public forum and talk about. You know, but uh, and that's not to say I've got some deep, dark, horrible secret. It's it's just it's delving into the nature of why I am who I am, why I'm an angry person most of the time, and I think I've become a much less angry person uh, since this started. I think you could probably attest to that. Um, he, he used to beat me a lot. A lot of people don't know this about. Yeah, you. yeah. I mean, Jeremy's had to have major dental work done, so. Uh, <laughs> I'm better now, uh, but I think that that's that's where it's gone for me. Is that it's it's about why am I looking at this? Why do I feel this certain way about this certain person or that person? Or how do I interact with the family? And why do I interact with the family on certain levels that I do? And then you you explain well well it's this and it pissed me off and it's the and it just sits there and stares you in the face and you know it knows that that's not the answer. You know, that's the answer you tell a psychologist. That's not the one you're going to tell me. You know what I mean? I mean, that's where it goes. So when Graham said that, I was just like, there it is again. You're not going to lie. You're naked in front of this thing and you're either going to admit it or it's just going to stare you down even harder. And I think, you know, you were talking earlier about how does this thing in, in the psychedelic experience, how does this thing change or how does it, how does it compound? Um, McKenna talks about when he first learned of psychedelics, it was presented in the framework of instant psychotherapy. You know, you have to wonder if if you're at peace with yourself and and you're, you know, which is somebody I look at and I say Brandon is at peace with himself. You know, that's why he's so calm and that's why he exudes sereneness. You know, uh, but when you're not, I have to wonder if she comes on to you as this. Uh, this serene vision, but as you confront your own issues, that's when it gets ugly. That's when it puts on its ugly face and says, "See, I can be ugly too." It's responding to y- you, you know. And what have we said about everybody from Dorothy Izot to ourselves? In that, you know, this thing presents a reflection, like it's a mirror. It's holding up the mirror, and you're naked in front of your own mirror. Because if you think you don't lie to yourself all your life, you're wrong too, <laughs> you know. Um, we've all got that aspect about us and you can't do that with this. That's the problem. That's, that's where the demons come from. They're you They're that, you know, 
this is all the direction that I'm thinking about with this stuff. He's um, me. Yeah, well, it's all you. I mean, it's it's all to a certain degree you. I mean, you're right. You you said this countless times to me, and I'm like, I don't, I don't. I feel like the guy from Idiocracy. It's got electrolytes. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> um, you know. See, you and always now, tell me you don't you know, know what I mean, is, and then and then you do. So I don't. You should just wait five well, minutes and then before it, saying know, I don't know what you mean, and, and you realize <laughs> you did. I, I think it's clear to anybody at this point that we have approached this from two completely different standpoints, and that I've approached it from investigating these things and trying to learn more about the me- mechanism of why and and how. And there is no why, as George has told us, and I think you've. Because of how it's interacted with you, you've approached it on a more spiritual level or more uh, – and that's not to say you're not critical about it. You definitely are. But you've, you've, you've approached it from a completely different angle than I have. And uh, and so a lot of – you know, I think a lot of the stuff we say to each other, we don't quite connect immediately on. But it, it comes around in time. So why the ghost thing for me? Because the investigative part of me says there's something there that I might be able to bring back that is – what, what might seem more tangible to people that uh, I don't know might do something. It's it's more than the ghost hunter show where they go, huh? What what do you think? Huh? Hmm? You know, it's more than that. It's you know there there's this need in me for this tangibility of of what you can experience and and, and can you document it? You know, that's always been my thing. Is if all this stuff happens, why can't we document it? Why is it always just the dangling carrot just out in front of us out of reach. Well, uh, on that note, we should wrap this up and and tease the the ghost episode with, in fact, we were dangled a carrot that we could document for about an mm-hmm. hour at a bus station. Uh, dun, dun, dun. I don't know if we're going to tell that whole story. Um, no. But uh, <laughs> suffice to say that Jeff and I had a shared UFO encounter. Of course. Yeah. After we had packed away the camera equipment after the uh, <laughs> yes. Ghost of Gettysburg thing, but I was able to snap off a couple of shots of this one of one of two yeah. lights or objects or whatever they were uh, yes. that I'll put on the website when we do uh, the Ghost of Gettysburg stuff. Next yeah, week. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And but that um, was clearly a dangle. That was clearly, hey, look at me, and now you're going to get to take photos of this. <laughs> oh, it was undeniable. It was yeah. it was undeniable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it and and it responded to us directly and immediately. And I've since been back to that locale and have found no evidence of anything. I mean, it's well. I guess we'll get into it more on the next yeah. episode of of what exactly happened. But I guess my goal in going to going to Gettysburg is I want a ghost and a flying saucer in the same shot. I think if I can pull that off, I'll retire. <laughs> That's what I'm after. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady who was whispering hush. Good night, room. Good night, moon.